Everett. very much on our last program having a, a chat with a guy that always seems to perk things up and because we had so much fun last time we're going to do it again so it's my pleasure to say welcome back to radio parallax dr howard mckinney and dr doug it's a pleasure to speak with you again we're doing something very unusual and that you and i were just gonna have at it walk out on the tightrope no safety net and and just sort of see where the chips fall just like life <laughs> something we we rarely do in this program i don't think people realize that uh it sounds spontaneous a lot of times but y- you really especially like with an author you've got to spend hours and hours thinking of what to ask and I, people don't realize that that sounds like real work <laughs> i try to stay away from that stuff i did think that we need some structure here and and since i know uh personally that You've got some tales to tell about adventures you had in the city of San Francisco. Uh, I have in front of me David Talbot's book, The Season of the Uh Witch, which unfortunately I understand you have not yet read. Correct. (laughs) But you need to because you're you're a part of this book. Was it the great song? You saw a lot of interesting things in San Francisco in, in, I guess, what, from the 60s and 70s? Starting in 73. 73, all right. You missed the summer of love, but it puts you in some interesting times. To have you tell our audience the story about how it was. You're a young uh, pharmacy graduate, and you're out looking for work, and, and I know you had a rather unusual job interview. I did. I did indeed. That was in April of 1978, okay. as a matter of fact, when I graduated from University of California, San Francisco School of Pharmacy, uh-huh. and... In my senior year, at the very end of my, I took the five-year plan through school, um, I was actually, I think, the very first pharmacy student that was actually certified okay to take a school of medicine full clinical clerkship with insurance to see patients and all that kind of stuff, you know? And wow. Yeah. So I took the tropical medicine rotation with Dr. Goldsmith and Vanderees and a few others. And uh, it was a month long and we went, we had a clinic and we did all kinds of stuff. Um, There were, as I recall, six of us, eight of us in the class. And it was a mix. There, There were a couple of nurses, at least one nurse that was in it. There was me, the lone pharmacist, and everybody else was a medical student. Fabulous class, among other things. Um, oh, Henderson, uh, D.L. Henderson, uh, who had just seen the very last case of smallpox on the planet Earth, flew back to the class with his brand new, just developed slides and showed us all these photos of the cook from, from Somalia 
which was the last case. And he just sat there just like it's a family member showing you summer vacation slides and telling these stories. I mean, that's what the rotation was like. It was great. Wow. And our, our little group actually caught the attention of a group of people across town that were planning a uh, colony in South America. Mm-hmm. And so Dr. Goldsmith looked at me and he said, you know, you look perfect for this. <laughs> you, you're a pharmacist. You, they don't have a pharmacist. You love venoms. Uh-huh. There's plenty of that in South America. And on and on went the list. So he said, I, I want you to go over there and they'd like to interview you and see if you'd like to work with this project. And you're thinking, sounds pretty good. I think it sounds fantastic. Okay. I got my bag packed. I'm like, yeah, it sounds <laughs> great. Snakes? South America? Oh, yeah, we're in. We're, we're totally in. So the day of the interview, there were about four or five of us that uh, went over to uh, Geary and Fillmore to, and yeah, here comes the punchline, People's Temple. <laughs> Did Jim Jones do the interview? Yeah. He did. Just a brief appearance. You definitely get the impression that everything he did, as far as possible, was choreographed. Right? Nothing casual about this guy. But the the other folks, which are written up in all the books about People's Temple, um, they were like, I don't know, a dozen of them interviewing us. Okay. a tour of the place. And what was your impression? Well, now that I've blown the punchline, back up a little bit. (laughs) So we get over there. We kind of knew who they were. We knew Jim Jones because he was in the newspapers and stuff with his, uh, you know, activism, political activism in the city. And sounded like, you know, an okay guy, just from what we read in the newspapers. Uh And we go to this place and just to sort of dance through some of the highlights of the terrifying uh, scenes that we saw there. Um, first, there was just the pressure from everybody. And it was like, yeah, you've got to join this group. You've got to come to Guyana. It's going to be wonderful. And all of us were kind of like, the sales pitch is a little bit heavy. Okay. You know? Doesn't, doesn't sound quite right. Uh-huh. So they take us on a tour of the place, and we go into the nursery. And there's a bunch of little kids on the floor, like most nurseries, with one huge difference. They're all quiet. And I looked at Annie, one of my classmates, and she looked at me, and we're like, this is not normal. (laughs) Not at all. Uh And it's like... They were all full of phenothiazines. They were drugged. I mean, it was like... Really? They were quiet. Yeah. Okay. And then at, at one point, I actually had to use the restroom, and I just kind of, you know, didn't think anything of it. I just broke away from the group and was looking for the restroom. I opened a, a door, and I, in a former life, collected antique guns, so fairly familiar with them. And I found myself in a storeroom with rifle boxes. And I was thinking, 
a church? What are these for? Mm. This seems a little odd. And there's a bang, hand on my shoulder. Uh, let's rejoin the tour. Okay, let's do that. That's what the whole day was like. Then they gathered us, and this is actually one of the front rooms uh, near the front door, and that was the real interview thing. And they really were putting the heat on me because I was familiar with South American poison dart toxins. Why did a church think that was especially important? If one is paying attention, one indeed noticed that. (laughs) What kind of sacrament is this? But they were fascinated with rotenone. I have no idea to this day why. But rotenone, for those who don't know, is a fish poison. And if you're a indigenous person in South America, what you do is the reed that contains the rotenone is grows in the shallow water in the marshes. You pick up a handful of them, set them on fire, and then beat the reeds on the water, which releases the rotenone, poisons all the fish. They float to the surface. You grab your net, scoop them up, and everybody has dinner. There's no effect to the person that eats it from the rotenone. That is correct. Okay. That is correct. And that is precisely the point that I kept making to them, because their questions about it got more and more towards, well, what's the human toxicity? (laughs) And I was like, well, there almost is not. I mean, you can isolate it and get poisoned by it in quantity, but oh my goodness. And, And it was just like, at one point, I just finally had to go, man, listen, it's a fish poison. Fish. That's what it works on. And finally, they're like, oh, okay. But then the other thing that that I wanted to bring up that they were just ferocious about, and I was still, like, intellectually interested in what this Jonestown place was going to be. And so I was kind of not really stringing them out, but actually asking honest questions. But by this time, I had no intention whatsoever of going down there. Uh Uh-uh. The thing happened. There's a little colony settlement thing close to where you're going to build Jonestown. What if I lived there and just came into work each day? No. It was that that abrupt. You have to join the group. You will be part of People's Temple. And I'm thinking, oh, no, I won't. (laughs) Wow. And how long before the the egress, how long before the, the flight from San Francisco was this? That is something I've never been able to determine. And as far as I know, they didn't all go at once. I mean, they wouldn't all fit on one plane, obviously. Yeah. But I was, I was there in, I, I want to say it was like second week of April, something like that. Okay. And I think they were pretty much out of San Francisco by the end of April. And then that November was the white night in Jonestown when they shot up Jackie Spear and others on the runway. First first U.S. congressman killed while he was in Congress, Leo Ryan. Yep. Terrible, horrible event. But that was in November. And needless to say, that that event just shook San Francisco to the core. 
that was way over the top and just blew everybody's mind, actually. Well, I remember the night of the broadcast, uh, Dan Rather came on and he said, in one of the most unusual stories of this or any era, we have what happened in Guyana. Exactly. I tell you, when, when that happened, and I saw those photos, especially the, the aerial photos and the few photos that were disseminated of all the swollen bodies mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And the, the big vats. I was just thinking back, no wonder they wanted a pharmacist. A pharmacist interested in toxicology? Oh, my God, that was right up their alley. Of course they wanted that. But i tell you what really hit me. That's how I spin this whole story when I've lectured about it. Yeah. Is it's a classic example to me of you always have to keep your senses absolutely wide awake mm-hmm. in medicine. Yes. And in life in general. Yes. And if you see something, the minute your mind goes, this is weird, start listening to those voices. Shame on me for not telling anybody. I had all kinds of top friends in San Francisco. Why didn't I tell any of them? Hey, man, you know what I did today? I went over to People's Temple and blah, 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 blah. There's something screwy going over there. I, I don't know what they're up to, but somebody needs to take a look at that group. I never did that. Wow. And I felt bad about it. I don't think he would have done any good. Uh, Jones was pretty well politically connected, and he had a lot of people uh, taking care of him in San Francisco. Absolutely. But you never know. Yeah, you could have tried. You never know. And there's actually a sequel to it. It was the 25th anniversary or 20th anniversary. I forget which one. But had a fairly big splash in the worldwide news. And as I sit here, I, I can't remember all the connections that led to this. But I ended up on the phone with the wife of the medical examiner from Georgetown, Guyana, who was the first medical person on scene in Jonestown after the bodies were discovered. And his wife was on the verge of inviting me to Guyana to collect all his notes, his samples, his slides that he made, the whole thing. And I was like, whoa, this is Amazing. I was at the Poison Center in San Francisco, which I helped start at that time. And and I spoke to my colleagues there and was like trying to get somebody to go with me, like even get a pathologist to go with me or somebody from Boyd Stevens Medical Examiner Department in San Francisco because all of us knew Boyd Stevens. And then when I called her back after some arrangements had been made, she was just so disgusted with all the news media people that were descending on her because it was the 20th or 25th anniversary that she said, you know, I just don't want to talk about this ever again. I'm sorry. Thank you for your kindness. Goodbye. And that was it. What, what do you think you would have gained from the gathering of that data? What I had intended to do was approach it forensically. Boyd Stevens was like, oh, wow, yes, let's do this. Because what we were going to try and do is answer a lot of those, these are gory, but answer a lot of those questions that have never really been completely documented about Jonestown. Is, we, we certainly have evidence to suggest that 
a lot of the cyanide was injected, but we've never actually seen forensic documentation of that. I see. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But approach it like a death scene. Yeah, there's 900 victims. Wow. Whoa. So this is a, a death scene of death scenes, but you can approach it with the same tool, is just collect the evidence that you can, and he, that's what he was doing on scene. Huh. And there are published reports in the literature that where he talks about approaching this with his usual methods and just being totally overwhelmed with the scale of the whole thing. Yeah, 900 bodies, not nine, yeah. Okay, I've finished collecting samples from body number nine, and you look up, and it's like, oh, my God. Good Lord. Only 891 more to go. Well, Howard, I have to ask you, Just you just mentioned a moment ago with your interest in toxicology, getting the poison center started, and I, I, I understand you really were one of the pioneers. I mean, nowadays, you know, poison centers are everywhere. People phone them up. They get data when somebody comes in an ER or, or urgent care. And they're a resource available to everybody, but that wasn't always the case. That is correct. The same time as that interview when I graduated, Ted Tong, who is a dean of students, is that what he is, in Tucson, Arizona, University of Arizona School of Pharmacy now. But Ted Tong was part of the, the staff at UC San Francisco. And he'd sort of been a mentor to me through pharmacy school. Okay. And his forte was, he, for instance, was uh, part of the group that started On Lock, the clinic that served elder, elderly Asian folks in Chinatown. So he was very oriented towards clinics. From day one in San Francisco in 1973, I worked with Haight-Ashbury Clinic and worked with Rock Medicine to go to all the rock and roll shows. Yeah. And Ted knew that I spoke Spanish, that I'd worked with Haight-Ashbury Clinic, that I was interested in toxicology, that I'd done all these special studies in parasitology with Don Heinemann, who was the parasitologist at UC San Francisco. Fabulous guy. Absolutely wonderful. And he said, I want you to, to come and be part of the, the founding staff of the San Francisco Poison Center. And I looked at Ted and said, Poison Center? What's that? Never mind, Howard. Just say yes and follow me. <laughs> yeah. And at that point, I was like, okay, whatever. I, I just, you know, didn't have a, a big-time job nailed down. And back in those days, there was no residency or fellowships or any of that kind of stuff. Well, you guys were one of the first, were you not? The, the history of Poison Centers goes back and I believe the first poison center was in Chicago, if I use my history correct. And that was a late 40s, early 50s era. Yeah. And but they're very few. And there's you know two or three or four of them. But we, in 1978, at the San Francisco Poison Center, started arguably, certainly one of the very first clinically oriented, multidisciplinary poison centers. So behind, obviously, up front just answering the phone and taking poison calls, we were actually seeing patients. We were doing consults. We had rounds several times a week. We all got together and discussed the cases. And at that point, 
the literature in tox, clinical toxicology, human toxicology, was pretty small. So it actually was possible to have read all of it, you know? Wow. And it was just so cool because there weren't that many people who did it. So if I got stuck on something and Ted was totally for this, I would just pick up the phone and call Edinburgh, Scotland. Jeez. Hi there, you know. So I got to know Barry Rumack and all these people. It was a fun time. I got to tell you, there were many nights working in a rural ER or out in a, in a clinic sometimes where it was like, okay, let's call the poison center. <laughs> it, was, no, it was wonderful to have that backup, to have that resource. Thank you. <laughs> Let me ask you something else. You mentioned Haight-Ashbury. You mentioned rock and roll. Um, you met, and, of course, with your toxicology background, I have to ask you a bit about the days of the Grateful Dead in the Haight-Ashbury and how that really got mixed up with Owlsley and the whole LSD culture. Can you, can you, can you give us some, some of your insights into that? Don't know a thing about it. <laughs> I know nothing. Well, my neighbor was talking about this, and he, he claimed that, that he, surprisingly, had, had gone in that era, and, and he said in the era when Owlsley was passing out LSD to people on the street, and he, ha- he took some of that and said... It was very nice. He enjoyed the experience, but soon after that, it got they added strychnine and other things, and he said, I want no part of this. You, you've brought up a thousand topics. There's Howard in 1973 in the summer, and I was looking for a place to live in San Francisco. And, of course, no Internet and no cell phones then. So I had the San Francisco Chronicle with flats that looked possibilities, like possibilities circled, and I was walking around in the inner sunset looking for places to live, and I was working my way back up towards Stanion, basically, for those familiar with the city, bouncing around between Lincoln Way and Hugo Street, and that's where I was looking for apartments, looking for flats, looking for something to rent. Yeah. And I was pretty burned out. It was three in the afternoon or so by that time, and... Uh, was getting up towards Stanion, and I, I started hearing this music, and I thought, wow, somebody's got an incredible stereo. Walk up, and as you may know, there's a point where you sort of exit the buildings with flats in them, and Golden Gate Park kind of pooches out, and there's Keysar Stadium, right? Yeah. And you just keep walking straight east, and there's... Um, Stanion Street. The minute I came out into that clearing, just with spleen splitting volume bouncing off the buildings, do 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 it was Led Zeppelin at Keysar. Really? Yes. So I walked around, looked in the gate, and there was a little area there, and that was the very first show the Haight-Ashbury Clinic Rock Medicine ever worked at. Led Zeppelin. Yeah. I chatted with them, and shortly thereafter, I was working in the medical section in the pharmacy, and the rest is history. And off and on, I've worked with the Haight-Ashbury Clinic almost ever since. That's great. Uh, But the way that started is Bill Graham, the fantastic, great Bill Graham, was a real hustler. He put on dinners and shows and did stuff um, 
in New York City, events, I should say. He wasn't doing music shows yet, as far as I know. And he came out to see San Francisco, was totally enthralled with the scene. This was in the 60s. Yes. And he started, he started producing rock and roll shows, music shows. And simultaneous with that, David Smith, who is absolutely still around and kicking, gives David Smith family seminar every summer, uh, is a wonderful guy. He was a medical resident at UC San Francisco and was doing a rotation at St. Mary's and was just appalled at the horrid management of bad acid trips. And for that reason, he started Haight-Ashbury Clinic. And then sometime later, a couple of years, um, Bill Graham contracted David Smith to run clinics at his concerts to take care of all the kids that were coming to hear his shows. Because Bill Graham, for all his rough and gruff exterior, he really cared. He really thought it was important that people enjoy the show and leave healthy. Okay. So that's where rock medicine was born. And we would pack up steamer trunks of equipment and gear and go to Winterland and Fillmore and all the other venues and set up a clinic in a little room, and we saw any and everything that came in. So that's, that's where those two dovetailed. Well, was, was there some truth to the adulteration of the, of the acid? Well, when I got there in 73, most of the psychedelics and certainly the wealthier and more successful rock and roll folks had already already moved to Marin and Sonoma and Napa and mainly Marin County. Yeah. So that whole psychedelic scene was still there, but not like it was in 66, 67. Um, the locals held the death of the hippie ceremony, <laughs> I believe in 1967. Yeah. They were like, oh, man, this influx of people has just ruined it. It's just commercialized now. But um, the quality of the drugs was in large part due to Augustus Stanley Owsley III, who is the Owsley of Owsley Acid. Yes. I would also remind you that in 1967, LSD was legal. Yes. That's, oh, yeah. That's true. And as a matter of fact, it was an injectable drug made by Sandoz, Albert Hoffman. <laughs> yes, yes. You could purchase. Yes. And the package insert said it was for the purpose of administration under controlled circumstances so that clinicians could gain an insight into the psychiatric world other schizophrenic patients. You know, giving LSD to schizophrenics just doesn't seem like a good idea. All right. Next week, leave your books at home. We're going to have a little session. I look forward to that. Some quick punchline. Augustus Stanley Owsley III was a descendant, a son, a nephew, I don't know, something, of a, I think, senator, a big politician from um, Tennessee from Nashville, and 
basically had a lot of money, so he was independently wealthy. His nickname was Bear, B-E-A-R, like the animal. Mm-hmm. So when you look at all of the merch, the stickers, the artwork, etc., of the Grateful Dead, you see all these little bears little bears dancing around? That's where that comes from. <laughs> You're talking about Owsley. He was also a brilliant sound engineer, and he's the one who did the sound for the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And Quicksilver and several other groups. Just a brilliant, brilliant man. And so he was both sound engineer and supplier of LSD. The strychnine, I wouldn't be overly surprised to find that occasionally there have been samples of LSD that did, in fact, really have strychnine in them. I have never seen that. And just from a sales standpoint, knowing very well what both those drugs do to a person, if you're selling LSD and want your customers to come back to you, you're never going to put strychnine in it. Come on! That's forbiddenness, you know? Jesus. So I think that's mythology. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that long uh, circulating rumor. Howard, we're, we're out of time. I'm sorry to say, but it, you know, I thank you for giving us a much-needed break from our constant discussions of, of COVID-19. And we need to have you come on again real soon. It would be a delight to go on another vacation from coronavirus. I should, Miss Will is handing me a, a, a note that says, I should ask you before we leave, how much bleach can someone ingest before it turns out to be fatal? Serious answer depends on the bleach. Well, yeah. We're hoping nobody gets involved in that kind of experimentation in spite of uh, President Trump's advice. Disinfectants are for drain board, not the inside of a body. Exactly. Howard, it's been a great pleasure for us. Come again soon. I, I will with mucho gusto. Si, senor. Take care. in a boat on a river with tangerine trees and marmalade skies somebody calls you you answer quite slowly a girl with kaleidoscope eyes